0: I am Rodrigo Garcia. I directed All Happy Families on The Sopranos. You're listening to Pada Bing.
1: You're listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that rigorously examines The Sopranos through deep dives, streams of consciousness, interviews, conversation, and NBA references. I'm Vic Singh, and thanks to a global pandemic, schedules are completely out of whack. I'm coming to you solo from an as-yet contamination-free zone. As of this recording, all NBA play has been shut down indefinitely. After an initial rush of shock and depression, I found solace in the fact that I could apply that extra time to more things Sopranos and Sopranos adjacent. The show's an old friend, after all. And right now's a pretty good time to lean on one. Today, we're talking all happy families, the fourth episode of season five, and later in the episode, I'll share a conversation I had with Rodrigo Garcia, who directed this episode. He joined me in studio a couple of days ago, so the timing couldn't have been better. Let's do this. HBO synopsis, Carmela and Tony reunite, if only to discuss Anthony Jr.'s dwindling college prospects. Feach takes Tony's crew on a trip down memory lane, Lorraine's allegiances get her into hot water, and AJ has a night to remember in The Big Apple. This episode was written by Tony Kalem, who, recall, also played Big Pussy's wife, Angie, And it was directed, of course, by Rodrigo Garcia, who went on to produce and develop HBO's In Treatment, and also who incidentally is the son of the late Gabriel Garcia Marquez, the Nobel Prize-winning writer of 100 Years of Solitude, Love in the Time of Cholera, and countless more. The title All Happy Families is attributed to the opening line of Leo Tolstoy's Anna Karenina, All Happy Families Are Alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. And it signals, at the very least, things are falling apart across both families. If Tony's the hub of this whole thing, the spokes are disfigured and warped. Anna Karenina is considered by many to be the greatest piece of writing ever. Fitting, then, that The Sopranos references it in one of its titles. Rodrigo likened The Sopranos to a novel when we spoke, and I thought the connection was beautifully linked. The book deals with themes of betrayal, faith, love, family, marriage, society, and more. Themes The Sopranos covers in excruciating detail in its own way. And the way the book utilizes trains to convey the passage of time, change, transformation, The Sopranos uses New Jersey backdrops and driving in cars. The quintessential theme of Russian novels is suffering, oftentimes in the form of unsuccessful relationships. If Tolstoy wrote the first 800-page Russian novel divided into eight parts, Chase created the first Russian novel movie divided into 86 hours. Okay, I'm not Sean Connery, And this isn't the hunt for Red October over here. So let's get on with it. We open on AJ driving up and down the Soprano driveway, like a Zamboni or something. The ice resurfacer, named, of course, after Frank Zamboni, an Italian. Anyway, the driveway is covered in track marks. Looks like Christopher's arm over here. In the back, Tony B and his twin boys are playing in the water. The camera pans along the Soprano's expanse. Tony B's taking it all in, one drag at a time. Beautiful shot that conveys the possibility of what could be contrasted with what actually is. Tony shows up, hands Tony B a drill from the 18th century. Could have been right out of Anna Karenina for all we know.
2: I don't know what the fuck happened to the DeWalt. Everything disappears around here.
1: Tight writing. Bringing Easter eggs from past episodes back. Continuity. Tony sprays the boys with a hose. Tony B's boys put pine cones in the filter. The regularness of life. The juxtaposition of the boys smuggling pine cones to Carmela's line is subtle but clever.
2: They will probably go through their entire lives not knowing that their father's sperm was smuggled out of jail to get Nancy pregnant.
1: And Tony's follow-up? It was the least I could do. Again, so subtle... Was that Tony saying he made that happen? Or was he saying having them come up to the house to swim was the least he could do? Part of me heard that as both. Tony begins to complain about the drill and Brian, and then he falls onto a stool. Thinks it's indigestion. Carmela's lattice top is a thing of beauty. Her entire wardrobe this episode was on another level. Off mic, Rodrigo told me that he learned that Carmella never wore the same article of clothing more than once on the show. It was one of the ways she endured her marriage to Tony. She surrounded herself in materiality to mask the truth of the underlying source. It's so layered. Anyhow, this episode she's wearing some of her best stuff, whereas Tony could benefit from an addition or two of Johnny Sack's GQ subscription. His striped aberration, would raise carmine from the dead. Quick sidebar on power drills. The good ones have gears. The lower gear slows the speed but keeps the power, just like a car. Who knew? I recently learned that the hard way when I stripped the screw for a DIY home project. Everything turned out okay, but I dove deep into power drill options, accessories, and technique after which I dollar-cost averaged up on my Home Depot stock. A lot of margin on those drills. Okay, we learned that AJ isn't doing too hot in school. Mr. Wegler wants a sit-down. Remember, he's the Billy Bud guy from last season. Now, he's AJ's college counselor. Tony says he told AJ to crack the books, but to my delight, Carmella points out that Tony took him to a Nets game on a school night. This, of course, is a perfect launch point to talk about the 2004 New Jersey Nets. This would have been one season removed from a Jason Kidd-led Nets squad that lost in back-to-back NBA finals under Byron Scott, first to the Lakers and then to the Spurs. We're talking Continental Airlines Arena era, East Rutherford, New Jersey. During the 2003 2004 season, they fired Byron Scott midway through and replaced him with Lawrence Frank. Kidd was in the first year of a new six year, $100 million deal. Imagine the number of units he could have picked up at the Esplanade with that. Larish Garol. Even after all that money and a squad with Jason Kidd, Richard Jefferson, Kerry Kittles, Kenyon Martin, and Jason Collins the Nets lost in the Eastern Conference semis in seven games to the Pistons after sweeping the Knicks in the first round. The Pistons went on to beat the Lakers and effectively ended the Kobe Shaq era. After losing to the Pistons, this Nets nucleus was dismantled like a car running through Pussy's shop. Kenyon Martin was traded to the Nuggets. His stock was high, right off his first and only All-Star appearance. And Kittles was traded to the Clippers. In looking back at all of this, more shocking than anything else was that the Pacers that year won 61 games under Rick Carlisle as coach and Larry Bird as GM. They lost to the eventual champion Pistons in six in the Eastern Conference Finals. Like Richie, Reggie Miller couldn't fucking sell it. A lot of moxie, though. Legendary moxie. Okay, from Reggie's legendary moxie and Larry legend we cut to Lorraine Caluzzo's final shower. Billy Leotardo chases her around the house, towel-whipping her. Tom and Jerry over here. Lorraine falls to the floor, poetically, next to Jason, who's been shot in the head, ostensibly by Billy. At least he gets credit for it on the internets. The song playing in the background is Love Grows, Where the Rosemary Goes by Edison Lighthouse. Far and away their best known song. And the following lyric is kind of perfect for Lorraine, given our limited context for her. She talks kind of lazy, and people say she's crazy, and her life's a mystery. Joey Peeps walks in with a cup of tea. Make yourself at home, right? Also, get-out vibes. A few seconds longer, and we would have descended into the sunken place with Lorraine and Jason. Fashion aside, note the nice gun as belt clip accessory. Ben Wade and 310 to Yuma over here. Subtle observation. As Lorraine crawls away before getting shot, her head is lined up with what looks like a giant urn, similar to the one that broke at Carmine's social club rampage episodes ago. Also, the camera pulling up from Lorraine to Billy is a technique that is used again later this season, so look out for that. I won't spoil it here, but I discuss it with Terry Winter in our conversation, and if you know, you know. So... Lorraine gets clipped on account that money wasn't being kicked up to Johnny Sack. Cut to Phil Leotardo waiting in the car, stoically. Somehow, some way, his economy of motion is one of the most menacing and intimidating things I've ever seen. If he had been staring back at the Night King instead of Jon Snow at Hardhome, the White Walkers would have gone back to Pine Barrens and never come back.
2: Hey, fool, you ready for another beating? You should have never came back.
1: I recently was afforded the opportunity to summon this look when my son got crossed over by another kid when playing basketball. For those of you out there that contain yourself and keep your composure in kids' sports environments, the struggle is real, and I applaud you. Cut to Angelo receiving the bad news. Nice momentum cut. Cut to the chase. Let's go keeping us confused and disoriented, throwing strikes but changing the action on the ball sometimes feels like the only people that can keep up are the guys in the Astros' dugout. Angelo's with Rusty and Little Carmine. This is Rusty's first action on the show, played by the legendary Frankie Valley, best known as the lead singer of the Four Seasons. He's the kind of artist where you can just say the name of the song and people go, oh yeah, that one. Sherry, big girls don't cry, walk like a man, can't take my eyes off you. Frankie Valley is a First Ward Newark guy. And his dad, get this, designed Lionel model trains. Richie's ramps would have made great accessories. The things that might have been. Rusty calls Phil a pimple, an annoyance. The first words or any sort of communication regarding Phil and his prognosis in this world. Then Rusty hands a Zero Halliburton attaché to a guy who comes in to take him. A classic film and TV decoy or MacGuffin. Anybody carrying a Zero Halliburton from one place to another merits a little investigation. Where does Rusty fit in to the equation? Well, he's a captain in the Lupertazzi family, And an ambitious one at that. He wants to go postal. Take out John and everybody in his circle. Deeply niche art reference. But here goes. Leo Castelli over here. Cut to Chris at the bing with Tony and a group of guys. Further painting the portrait of imminent bloodshed. Pre-fight hype. Somebody get Don King out here.
2: It's a fucking declaration of war by Johnny, if you ask me.
1: Is anybody asking him, though? After what Johnny did to him last episode, surprised he ever got out of the car again. In comes feach. Everybody rises, hugs. But it feels labored, obligatory. Guy doesn't waste two seconds before jumping right into an in-my-day soliloquy. Trying to impress the young guys. They got to know the history. Next, Aid comes in. Junior would hate this. Fucking Grand Central Station. Curious observation. She knows Tony didn't have any lunch. Offers him a sandwich. This could be a precursor to a storyline that will unfold next episode could also be just an overall, out-of-place, private moment between the two of them, surrounded by a group of people. I guess, actually, the thing that threw me was why didn't anybody else get offered a sandwich? Isn't there an unwritten law that if you offer one person a sandwich, you offer everyone a sandwich? This was a clear indication of sandwich bias. Another bit of curious. Sil pulls her aside to talk in the hallway. She doesn't work for him. We don't hear what's happening, but we see that something is happening. That's on purpose. Back on Feech, we learned that he used to drive Tommy Pinto. The guy apparently had a girl that was Adriana-esque. Nice touch with Feach being the driver of a guy whose last name was Pinto. Performance is not the object. The Ford Pinto. That vehicle killed U.S. automotive manufacturing leadership single-handed and ushered in a new wave of better-designed, better-performing import cars. Silvio asks Feach to share the story of Tony taking out his card game back in the day. Feech endures the ball-breaking as best he can because he has an agenda. Feach wants his card game back. Only problem is it's Junior's now. And then there's a moment caught on camera. Silvio shows Tony something that made him laugh and say, yeah. I always wondered about this. First, I thought maybe it had to do with what Silvio said to Adrian in the hallway. And then I got to ask Rodrigo about it, and he recalled it being something about the music playing. And when he said that, I got the same sensation one gets when doing a puzzle on a table... And two of the pieces snap into place and fit perfectly. Tony acquiesces and gives him 20%. But he's got to rent the space from T. Tony will throw in some high rollers. Friends of his. Note: not friends of ours. This will be important. Feech says.
2: <laughs> All right. Let me get out of here before I keep talking and fuck this up. Jeez. Words to live by. Then he
1: thanks Tony, calls him Don Antonio. The patronizing is next level, but Tony gives it a pass because of the seniority. A younger guy does that? They're on the fast track to bottoming out. But here, Tony's humanity bleeds out. He's got a soft spot for the bygone era. Whatever happened to Fech Lamana? From old, we cut to a close-up of a Botox pamphlet. Botox, the crown jewel in Allergan's lineup. Look at this lineup. For the uninitiated, Botox is short for botulinum toxin, a toxic bacteria that, when injected, paralyzes your face. It is described as the most poisonous substance known, which is truly a testament to the marvels of modern technology that it can be harnessed and converted into the economic engine it's become and the impact it's had cosmetically and in some instances medically and societally. The camera reveals that it's Carmella who's evaluating the brochure. As AJ gets closer, she hides it under other mail. The psychology of that. Little detail. The things we'd rather our kids not know about us. At least not yet. AJ's business of the day is that he wants to go to the Mudvayne concert. Mudvayne, currently on extended hiatus, was a metal band that peaked in the early aughts. Interestingly, they've been labeled as math rock, which is a nice moniker for rhythmic complexity. That AJ would have an affinity for them in the same episode where he has a math tutor is a nice coincidence. Or is it? Carm won't let him stay in the city overnight, whereas his friend's mothers are allowing it. Isn't life unfair, she says. The decks are stacked against AJ. And how's this for a segue? Cut to a card game. Feech, in the middle of a story. Love that it's always him in the middle of a story. Not at the beginning. Not at the end. Always in the middle. There's symbolism there. Feach doesn't have any roots anymore. And it's starting to feel like he doesn't have a future, an end. He's on a treadmill to nowhere. A lot of Feach in this episode. That's always a sign. His story is about two stewardesses from Braniff. This will be fun. Buckle up. Braniff was an airline. From 1948 until about 1982. Today, it exists as a licensing company. Competition, thanks to airline deregulation legislation, put it out of commission like Ritchie. They just couldn't fucking sell it. Again, lot of moxie though. They had an ad campaign called, when you got it, flaunt it. It was one of Madison Avenue's most legendary campaigns and featured celebrities like Sonny Liston, who sidebar fought his last fight in Jersey City against real life Rocky Chuck Weppner. Liston won that fight. Andy Warhol, who discovered soprano star Patti Darbonville, aka Lorraine Caluso, at a young age and cast her in a series of movies. Salvador Dali, From Salvatore Maidali fame, from an episode ago, and Whitey Ford, considered by many to be the greatest living Yankee. Wonder what Vito would have to say about that. One of the players at the card game is Lawrence Taylor, New York football Giants' legendary linebacker. LT. Ranked by many as the greatest defensive player of all time. A GOAT! He won Defensive Player of the Year in his rookie year. No other player has ever done that. He won Defensive Player of the Year three times. Another record no one has ever touched. He was league MVP in 1986, one of only two defensive players to grab one of those. Guy stashed trophies like T stashed cash in the bird feed. To cap it all off, he was a two-time Super Bowl champion. Off the field, not so great as of late. Lots of drug issues, and in 2011, he was registered as a low-risk sex offender. To which I wondered, what are we, classifying sex offenders now? Some are good or less bad? Bernie Brillstein was also in attendance a guest of Hesh. Brillstein, of course, was one half of Brillstein Grey, the production company that packaged and brought us The Sopranos. Brillstein's sidebar kind of looks like Greg Popovich. More recent pop, of course. The bearded iteration. So, features is explaining the props he used during his rendezvous with the stewardess. Pointy featherweights, which would be akin to modern-day wingtips versus white bucks, short for buckskins, which were a sartorial essential around Memorial Day. Couple them with a seersucker suit and you're one step away from tap dancing with Feech and Fred Astaire. I know, Bruno Magli over here. Midstream in story, always, right? The door knocks. Tony and Benny Fazio walk in. Feach is always getting interrupted or doing the interrupting. He's either the car behind the car that illegally cuts into the HOV lane or he's the car cutting into the HOV lane. Just depends on the day. Feach and Tony go back and forth a little bit for control of the room. Feech mentions parole officers and unannounced visits with respect to Tony B. Ironic, cutting piece of writing. Stay tuned. Tony backslaps Silvio's face. How's Lady Luck treating you, he says. what that backslap mean? Wet behind the ears? Lady Luck is a term that refers to the personification of luck. It stems from the Roman goddess of fortune, Fortuna. And I think its most iconic association is with Frank Sinatra's version of the song,
2: Luck Be a Lady. Jesus fucking Christ, how many times this guy got to say hello? <laughs> <laughs> What, did I interrupt one of your uh, impermeable stories?
1: (laughs) Go ahead. Was that a malaprop? I'm no fucking thesaurus, but that's supposed to be another word, right? Soporific? Can somebody get Mr. Wegler on the phone? Feach gets permission to continue the shoe-and-snatch story, but T doesn't let it last for long. He makes a joke, and everybody overly laughs. This exaggerated laughing obviously becomes a story point for this episode, as we'll see. Everybody's laughing, except for one person. Silvio says his hands from thalidomide. Thalidomide refers to a type of cancer medication that, when taken by some women in their first trimester of pregnancy, can result in physical deformities to hands and feet. What a deep and confident reference Tony Calum shot her money balls early and drained them moving along still at the card game Doc's daughter is getting married and she's hell bent on making the cut in the New York Times wedding section the ladies sports page as Carmela calls it got me thinking what's the formula by which one can make that happen There is a submission process with very specific photo and information requirements. It doesn't cost money, so theoretically you can't buy your way in. At least not directly. And these announcements, it turns out, are as old as the paper itself. The first announcement came out in the debut issue of the paper, September 18th, 1851. Sarah Mullet and John Grant were the first people to have their wedding announcement printed and the papers never looked back. Back in 2011, The Atlantic ran a piece that provided statistics and odds on getting featured in the wedding section. Here are some of the boxes it found that need to be checked to float right to the top of the list. Have parents that live in Greenwich, Connecticut. Be a graduate of an elite university. Have a stint as a congressional staffer. Be engaged to someone of the same sex. And be an elite lawyer or investment banker. And that's really about it. All this got me wondering, are those marriages inherently better than the rest of us who didn't have the foresight to build a ramp and drive a Lionel into the wedding feature section of the New York Times? We learn Doc has a publicist involved to make this happen. Extreme, but makes sense. I feel like to stand out at any level, PR and messaging are more important than ever. So much noise. So many choices. Doc's daughter is looking for a hook. Turns out, Harvard Law degrees aren't enough. As we've seen, there's gotta be more. You gotta fill that stat sheet. Be a walking triple-double. Luca. LeBron. Magic. Occasional Harden's. If your name can't be reduced to two syllables or a symbol, save the ink. There's surely plenty of room in your local rag to share your nuptials with. Brillstein says...
2: If it was a black couple or a gay couple, they'd be in. Hmm.
1: (laughs) A little inelegant and certainly not woke, but as we learn from the Atlantic piece, it's certainly part of the recipe from an odds standpoint. The groom, we learn is a professional puppeteer. And his dad is a big shot at Goldman Sachs, Upper East Side. That dynamic doesn't add up, though. The son of a financial captain of industry is a puppeteer? Certainly makes for an interesting blurb in the Times, if nothing else. Head of commercial paper. Of course, that refers to a bond-like financial instrument. Companies issue them to raise short-term cash. Interestingly, the instrument is largely credited to being an innovation of Marcus Goldman, the Goldman in Goldman Sachs. Okay, so Tony asks about his invitation, and the record comes to a screeching halt. Good one, Tony. Cut from Tony laughing and chopping it up with the guys at a card game to him impatiently and hopelessly sitting in the Wegler waiting room with AJ and Carm. Note the picture in between Tony and AJ's head. Swarthmore College. An institution that's as much of a long shot for the two of them as Tony and Carm patching things back together at this point. In all fairness, Swarthmore College is a long shot for most of us. The kid before AJ, coming out of Wegler's office, did this at Middlebury and that down in Mississippi. He's a lock for anywhere he wants to go. But his mother's biggest concern is that he isn't a minority. The fact that was verbalized in public is the biggest takeaway, coupled with the nonchalance on all sides after it was said. And with that, we're introduced to Mr. Wegler, played by actor David Strathern.
2: We are rapidly approaching crisis mode here with these grades, and
1: time is of the essence. Ramapo and Trenton State, we learn, make up AJ's list of colleges. A couple of public-local options. Certainly a far cry from Swarthmore or even Middlebury. But Carm, like every equal parts concerned and hopeful parent, is probably thinking, hey, we can always transfer out. AJ's reach schools are the University of Arizona and Arizona State. Both landing spots for varsity athletes and then some. And Wegler echoes that. Football is AJ's ace in the hole. Kids got the makings. Tony slips up and mentions AJ might have ADD. AJ never knew, but is aware that more time is allotted for students with learning disabilities. What's that racket all about? Let's take a look. Turns out, it is kind of a racket. Per the New York Times, demand for disability accommodations has swelled. Nervous parents are increasingly submitting their kids to a battery of testing, no pun intended, to see if they can find a diagnosis that would allow for extra time on everything from homework to standardized tests. Many of these exams aren't covered by insurance, so parents pay out of pocket, which creates a disparity the likes of which you have seen all too often. See what I did there? The diagnoses are imperfect, however. There's a lot of gray area, and throwing excessive resources at the issue to get multiple opinions can force the issue and give kids that don't really need the advantage an extra advantage. Anyway, what is this, scholastic news now? Wegler deflects. He punts. Wonder why. Was he already moving in on Karm right there? Get extra time with her to explain? His body language and the choice of cuts is suggesting that he has a well-plotted agenda of Russian novel proportion. Next, we get a nice image of Tony's head juxtaposed with a water cooler. After all, he was the subject of water cooler conversation. Well, for the past 20 years, for most of us at least. The only difference being, instead of filling up water in styrofoam or paper cups, we're all using our hydro flasks now, or whatever the Costco knockoff one is called. So, Carm talked to a doc about AJ and shared the news with Wegler and with us. His affect, we learn, was constricted. That means he's not great at communicating his feelings, which is normal for a teenager. Actually, looks like that runs in the family. Wegler suggests regular therapy for AJ, and we know what's coming before it comes. Again, kind of like the Houston Astros. Tony shakes his head. He's out on this guy before he's even had a shot at making his case. It's like an NBA head coach trying to convince his players to take more mid-range looks in today's game. Instead, we get more shots from the logo than ever before. Tony says people use it as a crutch. You know, like an 11-footer. Tony proffers up his question about Gary Cooper, the strong, silent type, remember? Maybe that's AJ. Wegler gets his literary axe and starts chopping down Tony's mythical forest with...
2: Uh, Gary Cooper wasn't a 16-year-old boy. He was at one time.
1: Carm sides with Tony, which is kind of surprising given the state of their relationship. She decides she's going to get a new tutor and stay on him, and that's that. Many a mother hath tried. Outside, AJ is bragging that he's learning disabled. Again, speaks to the open secret of the gamesmanship that has become endemic in the education system. But then, the tragedy of Domenica Paolini and Sasha Caputo. That tree Wegler chopped down must have hit their car, but their story serves to recenter our focus on what's really important. Or does it? Cut to Terrence Winter sitting in Melfi's waiting room next to a gift basket, ostensibly from Tony. The contents of the gift basket suggest a cleansing. Elliot later confirms this with an Elliot word, ablution. Doctor Hauschka bath products still going strong for over 50 years. Cut to A.J. with his new tutor, Jonah. If a million zeros can be written on the front and back of a sheet of paper, how many sheets of paper do you need for a Google of zeros? A Google is like a hundred zeros after the one or something. And the answer is 10 to the 94th power sheets of paper. There's a proof online. Apparently Jonah put it up shortly after this session with AJ. AJ of course has no idea. Crickets. But he's saved by the bell. Or car horn more rather. AJ got a new car. One kid dies. Another in a coma. That's all it takes. Jonah the tutor leaves. Hours up. And he walks to the ultimate beater of beaters. Quite possibly a pinto even. See. It's guys like that, always looking at the clock. Those are the cars they drive. Is that the message? And so begins the Nissan Xterra infomercial. Literal product placement. Full-on vehicle demonstration. Took me back to my car business days. AJ loves the car, of course, but is sensitive about getting shit on account that SUVs are bad for the environment. Here we are, decades later, Very little has changed. AJ and Tony are in simpatico. AJ and Carmella, exact opposite. Carm can't believe how AJ's turning out. He was always the sweet one. Shared before any of the other toddlers.
2: Is that watching an angel, fool?
1: Love that. As Tony says that, Carm tears lettuce apart with her hands. The sound effect, too good. hands and Bills, one for a cheap sound system so she can watch movies with her friends. Because at least she has friends. What
2: the fuck's that supposed to mean? Come on, Tony, you just have a bunch of flunkies. What do you know about it? They compliment you on your new shoes. They tell you that you're not going bald. You think they really care? You're the boss. They're scared of you. They have to kiss your ass, laugh at your stupid jokes. Well, what about Artie then? You know, you're turning into a friggin' cynic. Whatever. What do I give a shit if they're scared or whatever? I'm running a fucking business, not a popularity contest.
1: Great exchange. Some of the meatiest subsequent follow-up storylines stem from their kitchen conversations, and this is a classic case in point of that. Cut to Melfi at Elliot's. She's reading Tony's letter to Elliot, the one attached to the gift basket. He apologizes for the use of the C-word.
2: You said some very hurtful things to me in regards to myself. But it is still no excuse to use the vile word that I used, of which I am sure you know that I'm talking about. Cunt, right? Yes, Elliot.
1: Elliot says it while Melfi dances around it. The beat of her on him afterward and his facial transmogrification. Classic stuff. I still have great rigour for you. Note Elliot's face on cut. Tony continues, P.S. I'm doing fine. <laughs> At the end of the day, it's all about him, right? Even in the midst of a romantic overture. Melfi explains the gift basket came with a bathrobe, Made me think there's a version in Tony's head somewhere of a life where he and her walk together down a driveway, pick up a paper, divide up the sections, head back in together, and read their respective sections over some orange juice and eggs. From that mental image, we're on Karm, doing laundry in a basement. Immediately conjures up two things. FBI surveillance and What's she going to find now? But Wegler calls. Wants to get together. Something clandestine is happening. Just not from who you'd expect. He's nervous, but he's going for it. Shoot your shot, man. Carm's kind of shocked, but she's in. That's part of what this separation thing is all about, right? Optionality. Cut to dinner with AJ. Silence. Silence. What better way to icebreak a conversation than by referencing the Beatles, right? Birthday by the Beatles off their White Album. Carmela calls it Happy Birthday. She mentioned she heard it in the car. Was taken by the drum solo. Now look, for many years this moment was fine, whatever, kind of throwaway. But now, trying to engage a child and make relevant conversation without seeming too pushy or creating more minefields than is worth This moment is beautifully written, true to life. She starts reciting facts like Amy Klobuchar on a debate stage. Ringo was not the original drummer. It was Pete Best. What's that story? In a nutshell, he kind of got screwed like Feech a little. Bit of a parallel. Essentially, he was better on stage than he was in recording sessions. And the recording sessions were what they had to lock in on to scale. The reason he was purportedly given about his dismissal, quote, the lads don't want you in the band anymore. The remaining band members have since acknowledged how badly it was handled. whole thing was just kind of underhanded. And you can't help but imagine Best looking like Feech did moments after the parole officer asks him to open the garage in the back. Sadly for Pete Best, he wasn't good enough to bridge the gap between Carm and AJ either. And we cut to another boy, Tony, playing cards. This time with David Lee Roth. David Lee Roth, of course, was the lead singer of Van Halen during two different eras of that band's run. Came of age in Pasadena, not too far from L.A. In fact, it's where he met Eddie and Alex Van Halen. In community college, no less. Don't ever say great things can't happen there. Tony's Escalade is officially mentioned One of the players appears to be a Cadillac dealer and can't keep those bad boys on the lot. I did some digging and, interestingly, 2004 and 2006 were the years Cadillac sold the most Escalades ever. Wonder if there was a Sopranos bump. The numbers have been a fraction of what they were ever since. Tony says he loves the car, except for the global position and shit. There it is. He was aware all along about his vehicle being tracked, at least officially, but we still never see him reach around checking. Not like Walter White or Gus, in Breaking Bad at least. Those SUVs, Ginsburg the accountant says, used to be a great tax loophole. What he's referring to, without getting too in the weeds, is a Section 179 deduction, where you can write off 100% of the vehicle for business use, or whatever percentage you can prove was used for business use. It also allowed for big, upfront depreciation. The ability to deduct the cost of your purchase faster, lower today's tax burden, as opposed to having to wait over a longer period of time. Barone Sanitation was the perfect business for 6,000-pound vehicles, which was the threshold weight to qualify for this provision. If Ginsburg helped T set this up, he paid for his fee and then some. Perhaps a couple extra boxes of ziti on the house. But what is this? H&R Block now. Next, the guys bat around jokes. Feach tells a Pope and accountant joke with a curious punchline. He gets a mansion and I get a hovel. Which is a shit box basically. David Lee Roth says he used to be able to write off condoms. Certainly an ordinary and necessary business expense of a touring rock musician and a frontman to boot Tony's turn for a joke he makes a relatively weak one compared to the other two but the crowd goes wild like Steph Curry draining a 3 from the logo the camera choice to convey the feeling of being inside Tony's head as they laugh was interesting it makes you focus on the scene more than normal perhaps because this moment is important. Back over to Carm and AJ. She's decided to let AJ go to the city to see the concert, but he has to stay with Meadow. She's trying to compete with Tony, right? AJ isn't overly thrilled. He kind of holds his cards. Very tactical. Very skilled of him. Very Meadow. Cut to the wedding that was discussed at the card game. All the import cars are getting boosted. I always wondered, if Tony had been invited, would this have happened? And who came up with this scheme? We later learn Feach was behind it, but did he mastermind it? If so, props. Guy still got some moves in the tank. Might not be able to run and gun with the young blood But give him the ball on the elbow, run in isolation, and the guy can go to work. Live bands. Starlight orchestras. Live bands are always a great gauge of how moneyed a wedding party is. The bigger the band, the more affluent the gathering. Got a whole orchestra? Fucking forget about it. Luxury Lounge over here. And anytime there's a woman bass player in the band, case closed. Actually, great opportunity to put some pot-a-bing glasses on women bass players throughout the ages. Darcy Retzky from Smashing Pumpkins is the first that comes to mind. Laura Leasy, of course, more recently from Kurangbin. Jonette Napolitano from Concrete Blonde, Kim Deal from The Pixies, Gail Ann Dorsey, the bassist of choice for David Bowie, Kim Gordon from Sonic Youth, Tina Weymouth from Talking Heads, Michelle Deggio Cello. And there was a little band I saw at the Mercury Lounge back in 2005, I think. They were called Snowden. And their bassist, Corinne Lee, completely transfixed me. Shout out to my friend Shira, who I attended that show with. She listened to me trip over myself talking about Corinne. All right, enough with the beginnings of a Rolling Stone listicle piece over here. Back to the wedding. It's announced that there was an armed robbery. They left all the American cars. What a great touch! An SL55 convertible was stolen. That car is from the same family tree as the famed Mercedes Gullwing from the 50s. SL stands for Super Leicht, which translates to Super Light. The model in question in this episode was from the fifth generation iteration of the car and featured a retractable hardtop, an AMG supercharged V8. No doubt the model in question here, given the extreme rarity and waiting time for the car. 12,885 of them were sold in 2004. And do any of you happen to know how long the wait list is on one of those whips?
0: A motherfucking year.
1: Cut from one angry guy to another. A character from the film, Frida, stabbing the shit out of a painting. This scene was actually written by Rodrigo Garcia, the director of this episode. And this fact was is purely coincidental. The universe is wild, isn't it? Finn and Meadow are having a nice quiet night at home. AJ calls to say he's not going to make it up and asks Meadow to cover for him. And with that, we cut to Carm, who's in relaxation mode. The candles. There's three of them. Music. Wine. Furio, no doubt, on her mind. She lets her guard down and actually enjoys herself for a couple, three seconds. Sets it all up, but she just can't. She calls med. Cut to AJ and friends in a hotel room. Smoke and a seven-up bottle. There's a title for something. Chem lab over here. Guys pass that on the floor next to toilets. Sharpies. Somehow, some way, those Sharpies were the straw that broke the camel's back. Carmella had known Sharpies were on the table. This whole crisis could have been averted. Cut to the bing. The doc comes to see Tony. Tells him about the car heist. Begs for help. Note. Godfather style. Now, we're on the next morning in AJ's hotel suite. Note the camera choice to track the floor on a rotational orbit like a drone flying over a landscape recently decimated by war. Carm's calling again. Sidebar, once again, her top is incredible. She calls Meadow. She calls the hotel. AJ's room, room 417 we learn, has a block on it. Guy won't put her through. Carmella's stuck. Like mother, like son, so's AJ. Can't get up off the floor. His face is stuck to the rug thanks to crazy glue. Little known crazy glue hack. Though it's also mentioned in their FAQ or terms of use or whatever the fuck. If your fingers or face get stuck, soak the bonded area in acetone or nail polish remover. That usually breaks the bond. Cut to the ringtone we all know and love. (coughs) Carm is freaking out. Other boys are home, but A.J.'s not. Also can't overstate the irony of the boss of a family sleeping at his mother's house. The drab decor. Carm says he could be dead by now. She's so worried she's not even angry anymore. All this next to a bowl of oranges, no less. And then the front door opens.
2: Anthony? Damn you. I've been going crazy trying to reach you. Later, I don't feel good. What happened to your face? Just leave me alone. I want to know what happened. You never even went to Meadows after you gave me your word. Get off my back. You are a liar. Fuck you. What did you say? Get back here.
1: He runs up the stairs. She runs after him and trips. For the first time the entire series, AJ looks like his father's son. Sidebar, one issue I've always had in this scene, the staircase and the banister. All of it is not New Jersey mansion. You can see the grains of wood on the rail. It's a stage. A little detail that's always made me scratch my head given the meticulousness of everything else. I know. I get a power drill and all of a sudden I think I'm a general contractor over here. Cut to... The meticulousness of the framing of a salvage yard. That shot, my God. Puritan Salvage. What an ironic name for a company that's in cahoots with organized crime. Chris is speaking in code about the heist. Another great shot. Once a car pulled. That SL55. Super fast cut to AJ in bed. Fast car, fast cut. He hears Tony pull up, also fast, and pissed. AJ's standing next to a poster of murder dolls. Fitting. They were a heavy metal band characterized as horror punk. Shit's about to get pretty scary. is crying on the couch while icing her knee. AJ comes down, says he's taking out the trash. Tony freaks out about AJ's sexuality. All this constant harping on sexual proclivities a completely different concern than Carmela's. Safety, responsibility, truthfulness. It's an interesting distinction. In Carm's face, her reaction drills that in. She's not shocked at AJ's answer. She's shocked that the question was even asked. Like, what planet are we on here? Either way you look at it, though, super relatable. These are things we all think. And prioritizing the sequence of questions doesn't always come out as planned. We jump around. AJ says to his mother, you never believe me. And Tony pauses. Tony goes someplace else. Someplace far, far away. To his own childhood. To his own encounters with his own mother. Deja vu. And in that moment, Carmella lost. He's with AJ on this. Tony's thinking, You're not going to do to him what she did to me. And Carm is done. Says AJ can go live with Tony. Tony tries to fight it. Remember us, Carm, at the CYO dance? He's referring to the Catholic Youth Organization. Designed to keep working-class boys from turning towards a life of crime. Didn't exactly work out as planned. (laughs) Wonderful spot to introduce a bit from The Honeymooners. Nice touch. To get a show in that was such a big influence, as we've learned. Tony, Artie, and AJ are watching TV. Eating pizza. Seamless transition. For the moment, at least. In this moment, the three of them could have been in a scene from that very show. Cut to Feech walks into the Bing office, bearing gifts. Taral's expiration 2007. Think he's referring to Tarali, which is an Italian snack or breadsticks. Tony's serious, asks about the wedding takedown in Ringwood. Was that you? Ringwood is a woodsy place in Passaic County, northwest of Newark. We're reminded the doctor was a friend of Tony's. He deliberately used that word. That meant he's off limits.
2: Sorry, Godfather.
1: The condescension. That fucking cute smirk. I thought he was just another pigeon, Feach says. Someone he could easily pick off. Or in this case feed Alka-Seltzer to, maybe.
2: I know it was wait for a long time. But when did that happen, you gotta ask permission to ply your trade? Here's your end. Be happy.
1: Digging in. Refs are about to get involved here. Somebody better blow a whistle and call a technical foul quick.
2: That's the second time I'm playing catch-up with you. What the fuck are you talking about? The lawn cut. What do I have to send you a memo every time I move my bowels, too?
1: okay Rashid Wallace territory now Feach reveals he did a deal with Johnny Sack a better deal Tony loses it the bench is clear Malice at the
2: Palace territory now I don't like the way of being talked to you. what did I tell you when you came to me said you wanted back in I said, as long as you don't step on anybody's toes... In my day... And that's another thing. I don't want to hear no more about how it was in your day. You just keep your antidotes to local color, like flows or Meguiar Sisters or shit like that. Otherwise, shut the fuck up! To
1: which I always thought, what do high-performance exhausts and singing trios have to do with each other? Besides the fact that they both have pipes. Interestingly, the McGuire sisters had a song called Just For Old Time's Sake, which would be fitting for a Feech LaManna playlist. The bassy reverb emanating from the front of the club into the space, mixed with the silence between them, it's like the Invisible Man or something, a third being in between Tony and Feech that is so dense Zion Williamson level, density. Feach apologizes, says he'll learn. But too little, too late. The way Tony says yeah, it's one syllable, but he makes it into five. He flashbacks to the card game. Feach was the only guy not laughing. Rather, buttering his bread. Great visual metaphor. He's got to take care of his own nut. Let Tony play catch up with him. Come what may. They hug it out, but it's tense. The ambient noise in the background feels like they could be in a saloon in the Old West. The clock, poetically, reads just about high noon. What a stage. As Feech asks him if they're all right, his head is positioned next to an exit sign. And that's really all you need to know. Fitting that Jimi Hendrix's song, Who Knows, is playing in the background. Feech leaves, and Tony says what we've all been wondering since the very beginning.
2: Did I learn nothing from Mitchie April? Huh? Lip it in the bud.
1: Cut to a Chevy Camaro IROC Z pulling up in a new location. Those things were wildly popular in the 80s. IROC stands for International Race of Champions, and Chevy introduced that version of the Camaro in 1985. The last version of it came out in 1990. They essentially souped up the stock Camaro with upgraded suspension, shocks, and a tuned engine. Okay, it's revealed that we're at Feech's house. He's outside enjoying wine and peaches, classic Italian ritual. Chris and Benny run up. Olson and Johnson. That's a reference to John Olson and Harold Johnson, a comedy act whose work spanned music, film, TV, and Broadway. The guys bring up a peach debate. New Zealand peaches versus Georgia peaches. Which is it? Turns out it's a lot more complicated and varied now certainly since 2004. South Carolina and Southern California peaches are now in the mix. Also, China produces 58% of the world's total peaches. So it's a brave new world out there for peaches. But it's safe to say Georgia peaches are like your dad's Knicks. Once relevant, but today, largely forgotten. So, Benny and Chris are there to put Feach into early retirement. The way they set him up, the way they play it out, how many times did they rehearse the casualness of that? My God, you'd think they were actors or something. Chris's cousin, we learn, burned down his garage, so they can't park a load there anymore. Feach offers his. Bada-bing, bada-boom. He wants 2% plus a TV. And Chris pounds it out with him. Classic poster for when you think you have a deal, but don't. When you think you're onto something, but it ain't shit. Watch out for guys that twirl lollipops while talking shop. Cut to Carm and Wegler at a pizza joint. Always made me wonder if their pizza ever hurt somebody. Carm's concern is that A.J. will be drawn into Tony's life. Which is completely rational and completely understandable, but it's a surprising revelation from her, especially so soon in her relationship with an outsider. Wegler, we learn, is also separated from his spouse, Astrid, and likens it to escaping the quotidian. Fancy word for the regularness of life, the mundane. Guy wants adventure. Boy, did he pick the right target for that. Have you read Madame Bovary, he asks. It's a direct hit in some ways, as the story is more or less about a woman living a life of excess to escape the banality of life. Sound familiar? Lot of literary overkill this episode. Might have to revisit it with a PhD pod down the line. It's almost a perfect novel he says. What's the recipe, I wondered? Striking a chord with bourgeois loneliness and emptiness? I'd say, throw in a Dr. Melfi, and we got our own perfect novel in The Sopranos. Wegler continues that the main character in Bovary destroys herself for some fantasy in her head. Hmm. Sounds awfully familiar. He continues... It's horrifically funny, though tragic. Also familiar. Flaubert, the author, of course, is associated with being the top guy in France for literary realism. And Madame Bovary was his debut novel. Think about that. His debut novel is regaled as the most perfect novel ever. I think it's fair to say that at least part of this can be attributed to his process. He was an unapologetic perfectionist. He'd labor over words and sentences for days. He isolated himself. He'd say that nothing came naturally. Everything was everything was the product of revision after long contemplations. This cost him an output. And I found this interesting. Many people question the output of the greatest creators after their greatest creation. They'll say, what has he or she done since? I'd rather have the masterpiece than a box full of macaroons. After all, the masterpiece is what endures generations. It's what we talk about, write about, podcast about. It's what we want to share with our kids. Prolific is great and rare but I'd say timely masterpieces are a gift and in many ways motivate the prolific to create and hopefully leave behind their own masterpieces someday. And with all that, Carm says she'll stop by Borders on her way home. There's something you can't do anymore. She chuckles because she has no idea how to spell what Wegler just said, but doesn't want to ask. She's her parents' daughter. That doesn't make sense yet. It will. Cut to Feach's place. Supervisor Curran is there to check out the joint. Must have been tipped off. Kind of like Bradley Beal getting drug tested after going off for consecutive games. Guy wants to go right for the garage. And Feech knows right then. He was set up. With dignity, gotta say. But I wondered, does he realize in that moment that he was set up? Or is he calculating how he's going to get out of this moment? Or is he thankful that Tony didn't just whack him? Maybe a little bit of all that. I discuss it with Rodrigo coming up. Cut to Tony, Tony B, Artie, and AJ, vegging. Animals, these guys. Wings. They're watching baseball. Seems like such a pastime. Especially now that all sports are tabled in the name of public health safety. Fuck, Major League Baseball already says. Remember what being a fan felt like? Let's watch ballet, he says. And right now, that's prescient. The way things are going, nutcracker production iterations on public media might be the only thing left. Another curiously prescient moment AJ smells something. He got hotboxed. Something families across the world surely will be doing to ride out the pandemic. I myself am guilty on the Dutch oven charge recently while suffering through a lagging episode of This Is Us. I know. I said it. Cut to the beautiful sequence of Feech on a bus. Powerful, the camera choices. He's peaceful, somehow elevated. He's bonded, but somehow never looked more distinguished. He's looking at the outside world, and the outside world is looking back. They just weren't meant to coexist together. Wrapping things up, Tony comes into the office with a sandwich, sits next to Sill. He's moody. Sill says it was the right choice, then makes a point to let him know that Chris agrees, as if that meant much at this point.
2: That's well, nice that he agrees. But I'm not running a fucking popularity contest.
1: That line will never get old. Deeply applicable on multiple levels since time immemorial cut to symmetry remember the opening sequence was the soprano driveway this final sequence is also the soprano driveway benz is pulling up Carm is driving this time not aj she forgot the parking brake though that always gives me tremendous anxiety when it rolls like that I saw someone park in San Francisco once on one of those super steep streets. I'm talking like 45 degrees of pitch or more. Not only did they not apply the parking brake, but they neglected to turn the wheel outward like you're supposed to when parked on an upward-facing slope. The car literally rocked like Polly in his recliner. I think of that every time I see this scene with Carm. She flashes to when AJ was younger. Tony had a flashback this episode. Let's balance it out with Karma having one too, right? This is another moment that has taken on specific relevance today. The speed with which time passes when you become a parent. Many of us now look back like her all the time for all kinds of reasons. It can be the ultimate gift, but also the ultimate curse. She walks into an empty house and we're empty with her. The lighting choice. And then fade to black over a song that translates to The Little Sea. Carm's quiet house is its own little sea of emptiness. One of the great aspects of the show is when an episode ends. And like this one, It stops you in your tracks. There's a moment, for some it's longer than others, where you don't want to let it go. You don't want to check back into your world, to your version of bourgeois loneliness and emptiness. And it's an ultimate testament to the show and why we keep coming back to it. It gives us these moments. Level two escapism. It's almost like Inception, where you don't want the dream to end. You want to stay plugged in for as long as possible and go deeper, layers down. For me, watching the show again and again and contemplating it in this way over the years has resulted in two things. Understanding and acceptance. And in this episode in particular... Sometimes, do what you gotta do. Life isn't always a fucking popularity contest. That's all I got. Thank you, listeners. Stay safe out there. Hug a loved one. See you next time. Okay. Coming up is a conversation with the director of this episode. Rodrigo Garcia. Rodrigo was kind enough to come by the studio to discuss his work on this episode as well as other highlights from his varied and layered career. Here's Rodrigo. Rodrigo, thank you for being a part of this.
0: Absolutely. It's my pleasure. It was, uh, it's an excuse to look back on, uh, on The Sopranos. I rewatched the episode I directed uh, a couple days ago. And I was about to dive in and watch the whole series, but uh, I was scared of it.
1: (sighs) Scared of it? What do you mean by that?
0: You know, I think the series, you know, part of the success of any story is it sort of has to kick your ass. And I think uh, there's a lot that kicks your ass in The Sopranos. You know, there's a lot of uh, deep relationships, pain, loss. You know, it's not all fun and games. I mean, it's a very funny series. But also, uh, you know, terrible things happen in it. And um, and I just, I, you know, for some reason I, I uh, um, identify with Tony Soprano so much that uh, it's a journey that I, you know, I'll watch it again from top to bottom at some point, but it's an investment.
1: Mm. I think a lot of us identify with him, and that's part of the beauty of the show. In, in so many ways, there's a little piece of him in all of us a version of him
0: because there's a little piece of everyone in Tony. Yeah. You know, I think one of the things that is remarkable about that character and and one of the reasons he's interesting and also one of the reasons we forgive him so much is because, because he's such a human guy. I mean, the fact that he create, you know, sometimes he commits truly objectionable acts um doesn't take away from the fact that um you know he's incredibly human and incredibly sensitive. I was just uh, in in the episode that I directed uh, you know they, they one of the problems they have is the return of this old gangster who's coming out of prison Feech lamana um, and he is a bit of a blowhard and uh, Tony's uh, you know guys complain and he says, uh, you know give him a break, he's old." And and it was a reminder to me of how, despite his occasional ruthlessness, you know Tony understands everyone. And and uh, you know later on when that uh, captain of his is discovered to be gay, they all want to get rid of him. He's like, I don't care. He's a good captain. Um, the progressive boss. He is. He's just a very human guy who can see all points of view. Even if he then chooses a ruthless one, he's a super empathic person, and hence his weakness and his anxiety, and what lands him in therapy. I think.
1: Hmm. Have you seen the entire series end to end?
0: Yeah, I had seen most of it when when um, when I went to see when I went to do episode that my episode, which was already episode, I think four in season five. Um, and you know, they'd asked me to do a couple, but the dates didn't work, etc. I was on that rotation of directors then, that were part of a of the HBO series.
1: How do you get on that rotation?
0: You know, it, I got on it because everything was new. Um, their hit shows when I first did Six Feet Under, which is the first show that I did, um, you know, their their successful shows were Oz, and then. Uh, The Sopranos started and was doing well, and and, um, Sex and the City. But the year, uh, you know, so I'd been asked to, I mean, I'd never directed for them, but it helped me that they were a little bit snobbish. They had started on Six Feet Under, and they did not want directors that came from the world of network TV. Mm. So a lot of the directors who worked on the first season of Six Feet Under were Lisa Cholodenko, Nicole Holofsener, um, you know, that that kind of, of uh, I think Miguel Arteta might have done one. So I got a break, and I did a couple of episodes on that, in that first season, and then I fell into that rotation. The Sopranos was a little different in that three guys did most of them. Right. It was Tim Van Patten, oh my God, everyone's name escapes me right now. Alan Coulter. Alan Coulter, and uh, David Chase's friend.
1: Alan Taylor
0: alan taylor um so that was even alan taylor wasn't one of the main three uh so that was always you know a little intimidating because they had their thing right you know it they, they was a family
1: yeah
0: and uh and i wanted to go in but i was scared to go in and and then a couple dates didn't work out but finally season five i am um, you know this was offered and i took it so to answer your question i sat down and in two months or in six weeks, I watched all of it. And it was just great to watch it like that, like a big binge Russian novel, yeah. you know, that just went on and on. And sure, you could break it into episodes and then into seasons. And each season had its own major problem, as it were. Um, you know, season two was about Tony's brother-in-law. And season three was that Jody Pantoliano character, et cetera. But it really was just great to see, you know, to do what series do, which is to see relationships in time mm. uh, and over years. And you could see the kids grow, uh, literally grow in front sure. of you. Yeah. Um, it's just fantastic. It, it, was, it was a novel and it was, it was great.
1: Wonderfully stated. Um, a pretty pedestrian question for you. When you're directing a project, what does the day look like for you? Beginning to end, if you want to use the sopranos as a paradigm, you can or uh, just in general, take listeners back. They're always curious about this kind of stuff
0: well when you're directing when you're coming in to direct an episode of a series, uh, especially a series that is so well established as this one, and where a core group of directors you know are are the guys when you're an outsider, and we're already talking you know I was there season five, and the show was already you know considered by many the best show on TV. Um, You know, for me, the main thing is information. You know, I like to land and find out who's who and what's what. I talk to everyone on the set or off the set, the assistant director, the cameraman, the wardrobe people, the set dressers, you know, the script supervisor. I ask whose role is what, who's in charge, who's difficult, who's easy, uh, you know, I really try to get as much information as I can because unlike on a film, on a, on an episode, on an episode of a series, the director, the visiting director doesn't really have the power. You know, you, you, the show is run by the writers and, and then the cast because they are, you know, they've been on it so long and they are the stars of the show. So, you know, you, you, uh, you can do it well, but in order to do it well, you I, I feel that you have to find out everything you can about the show. I talk to directors that were there before me. I talk to actors that I know that have worked on, um, on it. You know, I do as much research as I can because I'm falling into a machine that's already turning.
1: Mm-hmm. You don't want to slow it down.
0: I don't want to slow it down. I want to do it as well as I can, but also I have to do it in Sopranos language and I mean cinematic language and style and rhythms. You know, I don't want to come in and say, oh, let's do all this handheld with a fisheye. No, that's not what you do. You know, you are directing a series of scenes that belong to the Sopranos saga. So for me that, you know, that information is crucial. That's most of what I'm doing in pre-production. And then the meetings tell you a lot. You know, obviously I had um meetings with Terry Winter, who was Uh, he didn't write the episode, but he did rewrite it.
1: Tony Kalem wrote
0: it. Yes. But, but that was an episode where they changed their minds a lot about what they wanted. So Tony wrote the first draft and then, um, I think both Terry and David worked on it quite a bit and, uh, Terry was the writer assigned to me. So I interrogated him endlessly, um... And then, of course, you know the casting sessions were with David Chase, so that was that's you learn a lot about his tastes and what he wants, and and you know he is I, I found him to be a guy with a very particular point of view. You know, he nothing about him uh, echoed back to television series conventional wisdom. You know you you never you never knew what actor he was going to like, what non actor he would prefer. You know very very specific, so you know I learned a lot about what he wanted and about the show itself uh, through the casting sessions, and then you have what they call a uh, a tone meeting, which is where the you know the visiting director sits down with him. I think Tim Van Patten used to call it defending your life. Uh, the tone meetings with David Chase parse that uh, you know because David was so detailed and so and he would quiz you, you know, about what you thought and what do you think the episode is about and what the main themes are. And you know, I, I I'm sure I failed half the questions, you know, he he obviously is is the um the lord and master of that universe and you're playing catch up. But it was good, you know, he uh, again, he was you know, unlike any other showrunner that I'd worked with, he had a uh, he seemed more like like um like one of these film auteurs, you know, very specific point of view. Um, you know, he was interested, for example, on the fact that, you know, I'd grown up in Mexico and had known Buñuel as a child. So that took a piece of our conversation because that for him meant more than, than uh, you know, probably my opinion on his script. Um,
1: you actually, sidebar, your, your father was very well-known. Uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez won the Nobel Prize, wrote 100 Years of Solitude, Love in the Time of Cholera, and countless more. What was your experience of your father's success, and how did he influence or impact your path in your work?
0: Well, uh, I'll answer with a couple of answers. You know, when I'm asked how did your father influence you, I always have to bite my tongue not to answer back, well, how did your father influence you? Right. Meaning, you know, everyone's father has a huge influence, even if they left, if they were good, if they were bad, even if they died before you were born. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the influence, of course, is great personally. Uh, As far as the world that we grew up in, you know, my brother and I grew up in a world that was a very middle-class world in Mexico City, but where... You know, the main things were, you know, political activism or providing a social service or creating art, telling stories, creating a work of art. We did not know a single businessman growing up, no one who was in business. We knew uh, people who were in advertising because those were artists trying to make a living. Uh, We knew some doctors and a couple of scientists, but, you know... you know, we grew up in a world where one of the quotes by Bertolt Brecht was, you know, what's the bigger crime? I mean, I'm paraphrasing. The, the idea is, what's the bigger crime, uh, robbing a bank or owning a bank? Mm. You know, so that, that was the world of it. So, but, but again, storytelling was at the forefront of it. Um,
1: when did you get a camera in your hand first?
0: You know, since I was a kid, I did still photography starting age 11, 12, 13, and throughout high school, middle school, through college, and that was my ambition, and then I transitioned into um, wanting to be a cameraman, and and I did that for a long time. You started? I I started as a cameraman. I really didn't start uh, directing until I wrote a script in my late 30s and directed that movie, a movie when I was 39 or 40. Um. So I was actually, now that I think a bit, you know, pretty new to directing. I'd been directing probably all of four or five years when I went to, to, um, to do the episode. But I had worked, you know, again, several times on Six Feet Under. I had done another uh, pilot for them, for HBO. Big uh, Love. Big Love. Um, but anyway, to answer your question, uh, yes, storytelling. Story, story, story. That was my upbringing.
1: So... You directed the fourth episode of season five called All Happy Families. Lot of added star power in that episode. Lawrence Taylor, David Lee Roth, Frankie Valli, David Stratheran. What do you remember from the set of that episode with these? Obviously, you were new to the set as well, but there were these added personalities and cultural anomalies or outliers, if you will. Anything special that you can recall or that comes to mind today?
0: Well, it was fun to be on a set like that, and obviously the you know the scene where they have the uh, the card game was great. You know, we uh, I didn't even know you know I, I read the script and I thought, well, I wonder who they'll get, but they got who they had scripted. Um, oh, they
1: literally scripted it, and that's what they got. Yes, Love it. you know, David
0: Love Lee it. Roth and yeah. uh, and the, the the Prince of the Meadowlands and uh, and Bernie Brillstein, who was uh, uh, David Chase's. Uh, co-producer, I mean, he was one of the producers, I think. He, he packaged was, the show. Yeah, he packaged the show. He was, uh, I think, Brad Gray's partner. But um, So that was great fun, but, <clears throat> and Robert Loggia. But by then, you know, the show had such uh, status that just being on the Soprano show, you know, just being there with Tony and Carmela and Christopher and, you know, Adriana, I mean, it was, the, you know, the, it was... Uh, You know, that was, I mean, obviously David Strathairn is a very good actor and I was very happy to work with him, but it was really like stepping into, you know, the novel. In fact, the day I got there, which is my first day of prep, you know, I had some things to do in the office, but they were shooting downstairs in the, uh, in the sound stages at, uh, at Silver Cup. And I walk down into the set and it's quiet and I hear, you know, a huge fight that they're shooting between uh, Tony and his sister. And it, I mean, the stage is quiet as those people go at each other. And as I keep walking, I see uh, Jim Gandolfini walking towards me, super pissed. And I'm like, okay. And then he walks wh- and past me. It turns out they weren't shooting a scene. Him and Aida were really going at it. I have no idea what it was about. I didn't care to ask. I was the new kid. But I guess they'd had a disagreement, and they had um, tried to settle it in, uh, you know, full old-school Italian style Mm -hmm. by giving each other a piece of their mind. So I really thought, boy, I've landed in The Sopranos now. (laughs) So... Also, Bus- Buscemi was there. Yeah, you know, who's a he was great Talk about remember. names. We're
1: talking about all these names. He was. Yeah. He's already been in the series, introduced, I think, in episode two of season five. But again, this season five was just locked and loaded
0: with well, you know, additional to, caliber. To, to go back to what I was telling you about how um, moving and emotional the series is, uh, I only had him in a couple of uh, episodes, in uh, a couple of scenes in my episode. And when I was watching it a couple of days ago, there is an episode where he is uh in Tony's pool with right. his twins yep. who looked uncannily like like um like him. And I saw him and then and then I remembered what his destiny was gonna be, how things were gonna end up between him and Tony, and it just broke my heart, you know, to see him sitting there in Tony's pool. And, uh, I mean, I think we're probably still a good couple seasons away, right, from that outcome.
1: No, it happens in season five. At the the end of five? At the end of five. Yeah,
0: and it was just like, well, even worse, because they went from, you know, from the best of from such high hopes to a total disaster. And I don't know why I didn't see it coming, because obviously that character was, um, you know, he, he was a flawed person. And, uh, you know, he's there at, the, at, the, at, a, at a poker game that he can't afford and someone is fronting him. and That never ends well. Yeah, I mean, there was, there was a little bit of a, um, you know, it, it was very well planted, but I don't know why I didn't expect the worst.
1: Well, the paradox of the show, right, is that every season, like you kind of alluded to earlier, they introduce a new character who, who will be effectively Tony's antagonist. And in this season, you get Feech... Who you immediately know is going to be an antagonist and then you get tony b and you somehow if you haven't seen it before you somehow assume that this is going to be like a counterbalance to feach and then they end up turning it on its head yeah
0: because you know? because, because he can't go straight yeah because tony is it blendetto was that his tony name b, yeah tony, tony b, b, b uh, you know he's not really an enemy he's a problem yeah you know some of the other enemies were problems like uh the character that Joey Pants played, and, um... Ralph. Yes. And and what was the brother-in-law's name? Uh, Richie April. Richie April. I mean, what a scary season. That yeah. was like...
1: That set it up, right? For all the future antagonists, Richie April was the template.
0: That was, you know, for 12 episodes, you're thinking, how is Tony gonna solve this problem? Well, I have a feeling I know how he's gonna solve it, but he want, doesn't want to solve it that way. And he goes above and beyond... And then the outcome is genius. You know, that surprise that it's the sister who solves the problem yeah. is um, was just great. I mean, even, even capos need a, a little luck.
1: I don't know if it was your episode or the one after, but it's alluded to how lucky this guy Tony is. He walks away unscathed from so many problems. This was the episode that sent Feech, where Feech gets set up, right? So there's the bus scene at the end, when he's being transported back to the prison beautifully done the choices can you talk about the tone and what you wanted to convey in that moment
0: well i mean i couldn't have think of anything sadder than an old gangster like that who had just done his time and uh was heading back you know for a long time probably because you know that type of parole violation Uh, you know, keeping stolen goods and, and associating with, uh, with felons. I mean, it was just heartbreaking beyond the betrayal. And, you know, there was always the question where he, you know, did he know or not that he had been betrayed? Uh, I always had the feeling that when he was on the bus, he still didn't know because he was getting older. But I think the younger wisest version of him would have done the math. He he
1: didn't figure it out when he was standing in the kitchen when the guy said, let's go back and look at the garage?
0: He looked more worried about what was going on with what was about to happen to him, I thought, than, oh, shit, I've been betrayed. Okay. Um, And, you know, so because I think his reaction to that would have been anger, and he was just more deflated and scared at home and deflated on the bus. Um, But even if he knew... You know, the fact that he had been betrayed must have been incredibly sad. Or was he relieved that Tony had sent him back when, you know, the most common solution would have been to whack him?
1: Yeah, yeah. Interesting uh, paradox, You're know, because when you're looking at him, he's thinking all of these thoughts, but maybe it's a combination of everything you just said.
0: You know what? We'll never know. Right. And that's when, when stories are well told, this kind of enigma is good it doesn't confuse agreed you know we will never know and that's what's human about it
1: earlier in the episode since you watched it um maybe you have the answer to this earlier in the episode when Feach comes in to ask for his card game back Silvio and Tony share a moment on camera where Silvio appears to show something to Tony and Tony laughs it's all shown on camera, but it's kind of out of context. Any insight on what was happening there?
0: You know, I I, I can't remember, but I do remember there's the two younger guys who are very impressed with Feech because right. Feech is a historical guy. Right. But I think, um, you know, Silvio and, and Tony are a little taken aback by the blustery... Um, you know, chatty style that Feach has. You know, it's a it's a combination of old fashioned gangster bravado and um, and just someone who you know you think well if you talk this much and this loud, you will eventually say the wrong thing. Um, so I can't remember exactly what what that is. It something f- physical that he shows them? or
1: he, he 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 just goes like this. He points up. They're in the back room, right? Oh, it's, it's what it's right it's, in that transition yes, period. It, in, in, I
0: remember now. It's it, about what music is playing. Okay, it's okay. about the song that is playing. I can't remember what the reference was, but it's about a song. Thank you for which which then brings right. me to you know uh, you know the show was so masterful at using rock, basically in a world that you don't associate with rock. You know, sure, now and then they'd listen to ballads and Italian crooners and all this stuff, but the fact that the um, the show was musicalized basically, I suppose, with the music that David Chase likes and that it worked so well, I mean, that was terrific. Another thing that the show did extremely well, and it's very hard to do, Some a lot of shows, some shows tried and fail, is uh, to have... Our character interact with real things and places, and 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 um, cultural things of the time, like Meadow was watching the Frida Kahlo movie, mm-hmm. or um, you know, in other cases, there's references to actors, or you know, it just it, it was able to pull off existing in our actual world, despite the fact that the show was. Although in some ways realistically realistic, it was also its own little quirky thing
1: mm-hmm. the references are legendary, yeah, and are still quoted yeah the today. Ref- and, and and it, it and was the structure of the references, you know, like something over here, like Bruno mali over here
0: yeah it know? was it was it was just very comfortable living in our world, and I don't know how it pulled it off because it's hard to do. It's hard not to be to feel old, even if it airs six months later. Um, Very
1: true, a lot of shows that you go back and rewatch have not aged well, but something about this show it's aged extremely well
0: well, you know the relationships, which are of course the engine of any series, were just so strong and so you know intertwined and so meaningful and so fraught with danger you know I remember uh I think it's season one is it season one that Carmela has that sort of um a platonic love affair with that priest. Mm-hmm. You know, and then in season five, she has that relationship with the teacher, with the with the college counselor. Wegler. You know, everything, everything is so um, potentially dangerous. Yeah. I guess because the stakes are always, you know, life and death because these guys have a way of dealing with something by just killing the person. Not that Tony was ever in a rush to do that. That was always a last resort, Mm -hmm. but it was there. right? You know, talk about storylines that are just heart-wrenching. You know, Adriana and how she gets caught in that by by the feds and how she is uh, forced to dig her own hole. She's preyed upon because she's an easy target. Yeah, and I don't know what you're hoping for, but don't be a fool. There's only one outcome here. Yeah. So, it, it really was like a horrible, horrible train wreck in slow motion.
1: In slow motion. Yes, Beautifully a, said. Yes,
0: a 12-hour train wreck.
1: Beautifully said. Leaving The Sopranos, you went on to write, produce, and direct many TV and film projects oh, after Do we the have to leave
0: The Sopranos?
1: No, we're going to come back. It's okay. all segued. It's all segued. <laughs> um, Six Feet Under, Big Love, The Affair, In Treatment, which is one of my favorites, in working on that series... How did you go about creating distance from Melfi and Melfi's office? At that point, it's probably the best well-known therapy setting, certainly for HBO. I'm sure there must have been inevitable comparisons. How did you guys approach <clears throat> that?
0: Well, you know, first of all, the series is based on the Israeli series Betty Pool, which was masterful and which had, you know, no overlap with Melfi or, or what was going on. You know, the the, the Israeli series... You know, I saw the first five episodes, HBO, you know, and and the producers had asked me if if I was, you know, they were, if I was, if I would consider meeting about adapting the first five. And there was really not much to adapt. I mean, they they were very well written, but the real discovery, because you thought, why hasn't anyone done this before? You know, what the uh, uh, Haggai Levy and the people who made it in Israel, their great discovery was that format where there's a Monday patient, a Tuesday patient, a Wednesday patient. And then on Friday, the therapist goes to his, you know, supervisor, therapist, friend. What is it? We don't know. There's a gray area. But it is him talking about his patients, which not only tells us what he thinks, but resets the whole clock so that the next week is fresh. Because as he listens the next week, we know what he's thinking.
1: That's the innovation for that's, the show.
0: That's the innovation. And, and also, the, 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 the therapist is at the center of it. You know, you assume that he's seeing whatever, eight patients a day from Monday to Friday. Um, but these five patients, uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday's a couple. You know, these are the patients that are close to his own issues. You know, these are the ones that are, that are touching a nerve. And that's why they echo, uh, you know, they echo his life. And that's why they're interesting. Um, you know, there's no way to do uh, genuine therapy because genuine therapy moves like molasses. It's incredibly repetitive and incredibly long. So even this at, you know, nine episodes per patient was at light speed. Um, but, you know, I, I never felt there was an overlap uh with Melfi, because just circumstance-wise, you know what...
1: I don't mean it in a bad way, by the way. As a viewer, yeah. when I first watched the show, I was like, wow, they've taken this, this... What to me is the best one of the best parts of The Sopranos is a guy deconstructing in front of his therapist, and they've made an entire series about it. I wanted there to be a series that was just Jennifer. That was just her in a room talking to her patients. And you guys executed that. It. So it's not in a bad way. But there was, to me, a natural... Like, I was drawn to in-treatment because of my affinity for the Melfi sessions. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I never felt that pressure because the Melfi sessions were so much around the Tony problem. Of course, they, you know, reflected back on her and she had... Uh,
1: the Elliot sessions. The, the
0: Elliot sessions. And, and she herself was raped in one of the episodes Mm -hmm. and you know that played a lot into her into her character obviously um but uh you know that everything in that room was so much about tony and tony's journey and so specific to tony and his mother tony and carmella tony and the kids tony and his his captains um that I, you know, I, I, I never. I, I, it, there might have been overlap that people could initially uh, perceive, but I, I, didn't feel that pressure really.
1: Why didn't that show keep going?
0: Well, they did seasons two and three. Um, it, it's a very hard show to make, you know. It's, it's to write basically. Um, you know, the, the, the episode has to start when they come through the door. It has to end when they leave. And um, you have to get a sense in half an hour that 45 minutes have gone by. Mm. It's in real time. You can't cut to anything. So the writing, I mean, we had the Israeli as a template and, you know, we used it extensively and then made it better where, whenever we, wherever we could. But it was already excellent to begin with. Um, but, you know, there, there were three showrunners in the three seasons because everyone, a season was enough. I mean, it, you know, we did... First season, we did 43 half-hours. And we were adapting it. We weren't creating it from scratch. So it's it's a very tough show on, on the writing. I mean, writing's always the hardest part of a show, but that one just was very taxing.
1: And different showrunner every season, huh?
0: One, show run, one year was enough to deplete you. <laughs>
1: um, did you want to direct The Sopranos again? Did you have occasion to direct The Sopranos again?
0: I, I did want to because you know, all other things, it was a great experience. I mean, I thought the actors were great. Um, I did not have many scenes with, um, with Christopher or with Adriana to use the characters' names or with Meadow. Uh, most of my scenes were with Feech and then with, uh, Carmela and Tony and Tony Jr. Um, and, you know, I, I just found them to be such good actors, you know, especially, um, you know, uh, Gandolfini and, and Edie, they were, they were very good. They were very comfortable with their characters. Um, but they still responded to suggestions and, uh, you know, I, it's a little presumptuous to even call it direction because by then they know their character so well, but, you know, I was new, so I had uh, some freshness and they were open to listening to whatever I had to say. Uh, I, I thought, um, I thought that Jim Gandolfini was very hard on himself. You know, he was he was sometimes grumpy and frustrated on set, but not directed at anyone. It was just at him feeling that he sucked or not not always, but you know, there were moments where I could see him doing well and yet struggling, feeling like he was not satisfied. But, you know, and the show by then, I mean, it was very well run. You know, it was it had, uh, obviously, a lot of budget. Uh, we threw that wedding, you know, which was all out. You saw it. I mean, that was 250 guests for, an, you know, an upper-class wedding. And, and all
1: those cars.
0: And, yeah, money seemed to be no object. Yeah. Um, you know, we shot for 13 days, which is what you shoot for pilots. And they had a 14th day. The first scene where... Um, where that lady gangster gets killed?
1: Yeah, Lorraine.
0: I sh- Lorraine gets killed. I shot the scene, and then they didn't like how it happened. Uh, I mean, maybe they didn't like my direction, but I don't think so, because they asked me to come back. And that would imply flying me from New York, from L.A. to New York, putting you know, which is a DGA requirement, but they were perfectly happy to do it. I was not available, so someone else did it, but but it was it was i mean it was like working on a movie they had a lot of resources um
1: so the scene where she's running around the house had to get reshot
0: yeah and it was a different house and mm-hmm. a different way they okay. just changed it even who killed her changed it uh you know i can't remember the details of, of what was it that that uh david wasn't happy with but uh you know it it was rewritten and it was different and you know she wasn't she wasn't running around naked and it was it was a whole thing um But yeah, it was, you know, Eileen Landris, who was one of the executive producers and and uh, the show was just run in a very classy way. Yeah. Yeah, they were, they were uh, at that time, probably the the highly, the most highly regarded show on TV. And uh, they were happy to behave that way.
1: (laughs) What was your reaction to the finale? the final episode, the final moments?
0: Um, you know, I, uh, I didn't know whether... I didn't know what it meant, I'm meaning it just ended. And I thought, oh, it ended. And, you know, how do you end something like this? They're, you know, having dinner with a family, and uh, there's that, you know, genius sequence where is it Meadow who's trying to park in the rain? which creates a tension that may be warranted or not. Honestly, when I saw it, it didn't occur to me that he had been killed. But I didn't care. I just thought the show ended. Um, Listen, when you've had such a good run for so many seasons, uh, you know, it's very hard to please. Very hard. Yeah, You know, was it a little opaque? Probably. But, uh, you know, I don't think it ruined the journey for me. I don't... In fact, I hadn't thought about it till just now when you told me. It's an, obl- I, what it's an I, what obligatory
1: I, question, but...
0: What I remember about the last season, and again, to the point of, you know, things being incredibly compelling and, and fraught with danger, you know, I remember the event that that got Tony killed, if it got him killed, which is when he beats up that guy and kicks his face against the sink and he loses his teeth... I mean, I remember watching that scene where he totally loses it and thinking, oh, my God, this can finally get him killed. You know, he totally lost control um, because he's done horrible things before but seldom out of control. Right. And that one was, uh, I mean, I remember looking at that and thinking, oh, my God, I don't know if I dare to watch more because this this is going to be hell to pay here for real.
1: Yeah, it's one of the most legendary curb stomps ever captured on film or TV. Um, I always finish every episode with a lightning round. Last good book you read?
0: Uh, Bleak House.
1: Favorite music right now?
0: Um, uh, Billie Eilish.
1: Okay, wow. Do
0: you have kids? But meaning that's what I'm listening to right now. Yeah. Well, I, I'm glad. Thank you for assuming my kids introduced me to her. <laughs> I actually was fishing a few months ago. I was fishing through iTunes And I heard these two songs by this girl, and I thought, wow, this is good. So you discovered her. Well, I texted my daughters, and they texted back, duh. Yeah. (laughs) You know, but at least I, you know, had enough ears to think That she was good.
1: At least your self discovery engine is still working. It's somewhat. still,
0: dis- although, she, you know, I, I, it's a list of 50 new artists. It's better to I've be never... late than never is what I said. Yeah. yeah.
1: It, what's the, what was the NBC? If you haven't seen it yet, it's new to you. So it's if you haven't heard yeah, it exactly. yet. Exactly. Like, right? like
0: Scorsese says, there are no old movies, just movies you haven't seen.
1: Yeah. What TV shows and films have you enjoyed recently?
0: I liked uh, the HBO series Our Boys, which is about that uh, wonderful story. You know, the, the Israeli Palestinian conflict and the killing of three Israeli boys and some Orthodox uh, Jewish boys taking revenge by setting a Palestinian boy on fire and, and the, you know, the, the trial. I thought that was excellent, uh, created by Haggai Levy, who created in treatment. So I'm not, uh, I'm not that far from uh, the stuff that I like. Um, you know, at the risk of being a boar, parasite, <laughs> I mean, what's wrong with that? Uh, I, I will tell you a couple of movies that I thought were uh, uh, very underrated this year. Waves and Honey Boy. Okay. I think those movies uh, should have been in the running for more attention, more, more awards.
1: As a director, as a writer, as a producer, as someone who's been in, you know, entrenched in this world for so long, can you summarize or describe in your own words what, what it was about Parasite that just completely sent it into the stratosphere?
0: It's impossible to say what touches a nerve. You know, I, I can I can't say that any more than I can say what about Moonlight touched a nerve. I mean, obviously, Moonlight did not have the box office success, but it did have appeal across the board. You know, I can imagine what it was like when he was trying to get it off the ground to pitch this three story movie about a gay black guy. I mean, that's like okay, you have you have brought together everything that. You know, is unproducible. Right, right, And the movie really hit a nerve. Um, I think in the case of Moonlight, you know, how genuine and emotional it is. I think Parasite is also emotional, but first of all, it's fun. It's wacky. It brings a, uh, you know, a class question into it. Um, you know, some of the story turns are astonishing, when that woman comes back and they discover where her husband lives, for example. Um, and, and then its ability, and I don't know if general audiences you know, record this, but for filmmakers it's astonishing how he jumps between tones and genres. You know, there's comedy, there's social comedy, there's social commentary, there's melodrama, there's tragedy. You know, the scene uh, in the garden where the stabbing happens, that's like a comic book. And then the last scene is incredibly lyrical and moving, you know, where the boy dreams of one day owning the house. Mm. But the answer is, who knows? It hit a nerve and it totally deserved it.
1: William Goldman, nobody knows anything, right? That's right. What's on your plate right now?
0: Um, I just finished a movie that I did in the fall that opened at the at the Sundance Film Festival. It's based on an article in the Washington Post uh, about a woman taking care uh, of her grown-up daughter who's an addict, trying to keep her clean for four days. Uh, it's called Four Good Days. Uh, I rewrote it with the writer who wrote the article, Eli Saslow. Uh, and it stars uh, Glenn Close and Mila Kunis. So that still, you know, hasn't come out yet. And then I'm off to Argentina to do a miniseries uh, based on a book called Santa Evita, Saint Evita, which tells the 20-year journey of the corpse of Eva Perón, which is a real story. True story
1: business question if you want to option a article, who owns the article is it is it the Washington Post or is it the writer
0: it depends on uh, on the publication in this case, it was owned by the writer, but uh, i don't know if that has changed or if you know it, it 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 differs from publication to publication, and then of course you you have to also take into account um who the story's about you know we right. we did we did acquire the life rights of the two women so it's two
1: separate deals it's the optioning of the article and then the life rights
0: yeah because the article is you know that's what you're basing it on and uh and we we stuck to a lot of things that were in the article and that were real and you know you you can't do it without their permission nor do you want to no. you know this is this this you know addiction is is a is a nightmare for the addict and the family that's going through it so you know to do a movie like that without the blessing of of the people who are part of it would be crazy
1: finally if you hosted a podcast what would you want it to be about and why
0: um if i hosted a podcast you know i am i am uh, i suppose you know the creative process how people come up with stories how stories are you know developed uh you know, for not just for for uh, TV and film, but novelists, short story writers, uh, podcast writers. Um, you know how how stories are made up.
1: Rodrigo, thank you so much.
0: Thank you.